0: Over to the Value Script, the podcast where we bring value every episode for the everyday person. Today we have a very exciting show. We have some very special guests. Sam Scheid is with us in the house. Sam may not think he's a very special guest, but wow. I've been wanting to have this on this podcast since we started. And you've been one of the people on actually by A-list. Like you're just under like Jordan Peterson and Andy. And wow. <laughs> <laughs> If only, if only right? you are. Anyway, we're going to talk about why some, some of the amazing things that you've accomplished in your life. I I like how, when I just asked you, like, how do you
1: describe yourself? First and foremost, I'm a a father and I'm a husband. That's, that's it. Um, Professionally I'm a pilot, but uh, I, my, my main accomplishments, my uh, most proud things in my life are my family. So I like to describe myself as father of six kids and a husband to my wife. That's awesome. That is awesome. How did,
0: how did you begin this journey?
1: Yeah. Oh. <laughs> sheesh. Well, uh, my wife was recently on this podcast. She talked a lot about home education and things like that. And it's kind of come full circle for me in understanding a lot of my personal struggles of having grown up. Um, I grew up in a family, eight kids. I was the third of eight. My dad was a military dude going through school. I was the, I was dumb. You know, according to what the schools labeled me as I like that's I was told in, by
0: your. Yeah. Right. Teachers.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, like I'd go to the career counselors and they they'd tell me, ah you know, you're not really thriving in any any one place. Uh, you say you want to be a pilot, but your math scores are so bad that you're never going to be a pilot because pilots, you know, they require you to understand math and know a few things about it. So I kind of assume that ah, I guess I won't be a pilot. That's that's out of the question. I don't know what I want to be. And they'd ask you those questions. Right. And you're in high school and you're like, I don't know. What do you want to be? I I don't know. What did he say? I want to be whatever he said. I don't, I don't know what I want to be. Um, it was just a struggle for me. So I finished high school, like a 2.3 GPA. Um, I remember trying to fill out my, they had a career day in in high school and I went to Hillcrest high school in, in Utah, in Sandy, Utah, Midvale, Utah, whatever. And they had this career day where all the colleges were in town to, um, kind of pitch you on their schools, you know, go here, go there, whatever. I don't remember much about it, but I brought home a few of the applications for the few that I thought I'd be interested in going to just because that's where my friends were going or I had heard of those colleges or whatever, got home and, you know, showed my parents the applications and they, they kind of were like, well, it's 35 bucks to apply. How are you going to even do that? And I was like, oh, I guess I'll just throw those away. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know. I, I just assumed that like the, the progression of life was like you finish high school, then you go to college. You know, while you're in college, you get married, but you also already know what you want to be. And I was still like, I don't know what I want to be. So Um, you, at that time you didn't have a career. No clue. None, none whatsoever. Um, I ended up going on an LDS church mission to Mexico. Um, and I grew up a lot during those two years. Uh, you know, how would you not grow up? Right. You're 19 years old. You go live in a foreign country. you, You learn a foreign language. You live with one other person. You have to get along. The other person I lived with, he was Mexican, didn't speak English. So it was, I had to learn Spanish. I had to learn it, you know, like I couldn't, if I wanted to talk to somebody, I had to talk to him. And it was only in Spanish. Um, I couldn't just call home when I wanted to, I could write letters home, but that was about it. And I think we got 30 minutes every Monday for emailing um, families back then is, is how the church missions worked. Um, but I feel like I grew up a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned about planning, goal setting, things like that, and just to, just working. That's What else do you have to do as a missionary? You don't do anything but work. Came home from my mission and it was the same thing. I still wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I had a friend that uh, he was like, I'll, I'll pay for you to go to school. Let's go to UVSC. It was UV, UV, it's UVU now, but back then it was UVSC. So he paid for me to go to my first semester of college. Takes me down and I do this placement test.
0: You had a a friend
1: that paid your tuition to go to college. Yeah. That's a good friend. Great friend. He's, he's amazing. (laughs) Uh, his, awesome. name's, his name's Mark bench. Um, yeah. but we go down there, I do the placement test. And again, like, I'm, I'm so embarrassed, you know, cause I, I do this dumb placement test. Everything's fine except for math. Like I'm just kind of in the, the normal, like English is fine. Math. I'm supposed to do math. 990. I was like, what, what's that mean? It's like, eh, well, high school math is not even like, that's like junior high math. Like you're, you're dumb. <laughs> so like I sign up for math 990 <laughs> and I show up to the first day of that class. And I was like, Oh man, like this is, like looking around the classroom, just seeing who I'm in that class with. And I'm like, man, like, I, I, I know I'm smarter than this. And so I dropped that class and pretty soon I ended up dropping most of those classes. Um, just cause I didn't feel like I, I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I belong there, you know, like, uh, so I ended up not really things happen in life, you know, like, uh, my parents ended up getting divorced, um, that year I was like 22 years old. So that kind of threw a wrench in everything. I, ended up just dropping out of school, but I didn't drop out. I just stopped going to class. I didn't know you had to officially borrow. Totally off. Yeah. So I had like a zero, follow point, the rule. you know, like a, just my GPA from college, like reflected who I thought I was and who I felt like I was just like this unintelligent human being. And and they eventually let me back in. I was on academic probation. You know, I would do like one class at a time as I could afford it. Um, do you like the easy classes? You know, like I do things that I could understand English. Like I would take an English class or I would take a, a Spanish class um, I took, you know, just some of the basic classes just to try to like make an effort at life. Cause I don't know what I want to be still. I'm, I'm 21, 22 years old now feeling like I should have some direction in life. Like I see my roommates and my friends like, Oh, they're going into finance or getting ready for law school. They're getting ready for whatever school, like they're just excelling. And then there's me like still unsure on what I want to do, what I want to be, um, how I'm going to pay for it, how I'm going to do this, how I'm going to do that ended up, um, just doing what every 22, 23-year-old dude in, in Provo, Utah did. And I ended up doing door-to-door sales for four summers. Um, I can't say I loved it, but I didn't hate it either because it was just, you know, you're out in whatever city in America selling door-to-door home security systems. Um, I was always just right in the middle, never like this amazing salesperson. And I think a lot of that stemmed around me because I, I, I couldn't lie to people. I just, you know, like, Hey, can I, can I cancel this contract? Like, um, like
0: if somebody was in my mom's house right now
1: and they were trying to sell her an alarm system and she asked if they could sell it or if if she could cancel and they said, yeah, you can cancel it. And then it turns out she can't, I'd be pretty like not happy. So I, I felt like I always had this, like, I just, I can't like not be so upfront with you. Like, yeah, there's an activation fee. There's this, there's these little fees. No, you can't cancel whenever you want. So I was always like the sales I had were always like super solid. They all like, they never didn't get funded or whatever, but I never hit like the, the hundred goals, you know, or the hundred sales that required that were required to make your summer actually worth it. You didn't get the pink Cadillac. Never, no, I never got the pink Cadillac. just drove my gold, uh, Toyota Camry, called it the golden stallion. Cool. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> All along the way, I always knew I wanted to go in the military. I, I always like had this purpose, or I always felt like this calling that I just wanted to go in the military. Um, I just I loved what the military did. I was I came from a military family. Um, some of my fond memories of a little being a little kid were going out to the the demonstration days that they used to have at Fort Campbell when I was like seven years old. Um, you'd go out there and you'd sit in the bleachers, and this is pre 9 11 This is pre you know like even Desert Storm you sit in these bleachers and they'd, you know, launch or they'd shoot cannons and you'd have people jumping out of airplanes, parachuting in, you'd have helicopters coming in. You just have like, you know, explosions and gunfire. And it looked really cool. I always thought it was so rad. Um, then we ended up in Utah. I was nine years old, um, went through everything. And I always had this, like, just draw, like I'd see a helicopter. And I'd be like, oh, that's a Black Hawk or that's a, that's an Apache. I always just knew what they were. I always loved the army aviation side of things. And so right when I got home from my mission, I, I, I made an attempt to go into the army as a pilot and I did the ASVAB. I I took the ASVAB, I scored high enough. And then I remember I was supposed to go take another test called the AFAST. I showed up down at the MEP station and I waited for, I don't know, it was like two hours or something. And my recruiter never showed up. I remember just sitting there like, what's going on? And you sit there and I'm in this lobby in this waiting area and there's these like grumpy Marines because they're having to guard this MEP station or they have to work in the MEP station. If you sit there and you put one foot up on top of the other, like just rest your leg, like up, they yell at you because you have to have both feet on the ground. You can't be on a cell phone. It's just, these they kept yelling at me because I'd like sit back and like kind of relax a little bit. Like, no, you can't sit like that. And I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> Finally, another recruiter I recognize in the military. <laughs> yeah, <yet. laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm just a- <laughs> right. sitting dude. It was weird. Um, this other recruiter shows up. I recognized him from the the same offices where my recruiter was from. Turns out uh, he was on his way down to the MEP station, and he was on his motorcycle. He had a minivan, and he died. Um, oh my gosh! So all wow. of my information it's on his comp- it's stored on his computer, locked with his. The, in the army, they call it a cat card. You're I don't even know what that stands for, common access card or something like that. Um, so I hearing that, I was like, yeah, you know what? Like, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is a sign. Yeah. Maybe this is a sign. Like I'll just do my own thing. So I I went, you know, and then that's when I ended up going to trying to go to college. Um, yeah. Fast forward, you know, 2000, it was 2008 now. Um, so four years of me being a door-to-door salesman, just kind of being stagnant, not sure what I'm going to do, not what I'm, what I'm going to be. And I don't tell anybody this time what I'm doing. I just go down and I talk to the recruiter And I say, I walk in and I say, I want to be a pilot. And he's like, yeah, you know, cool. That's, that's amazing. I'm happy to have (laughs) you here. You know, a lot of people want to be a pilot. Let me show you what we can offer you. Let me show you, I can get you a, you know, whatever thousand dollars signing bonus. If you go and become this. And he shows me these cool videos. And I remember sitting at his desk for, I don't know, it was probably two hours watching, um, recruiting videos for the army and every different job they have. You know, it's like an 11 Bravo an infantryman this is what you do. If you're in 11 Bravo, like this cool video, it's like five minutes long. And he's like, so what do you think? I'm like, that's cool. And then he shows me another one. He's like, Oh, this is a, this is a medic. This is an engineer, combat engineer. This is a, this, this is a, that. And and, you know, the last one he shows me is a, like the Ranger special forces videos. And I'm like, these are really, really cool, but I want to be a pilot. Yeah. He's like, he goes, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I get it. That's what a a lot of people come in here. A lot of people say that. Why don't you go home for the weekend, take these videos with you, watch them, come back Monday. Let me know what you think. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Went home. I don't think I even watched any of the DVDs he gave me, um, came back in on Monday morning, whatever. And he said, so what's it going to be? Is it going to be uh, special forces or, you know, he rattles off a couple, a couple different jobs in the army. And I say, you know, I, I, I still just want to be a pilot, man. And he's like, well, I, I can't help you. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to help you really? with that. Yeah. It just kind of blows me off. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I know recruiters when they put somebody into the army, there's, like little bonus points that these recruiters can get for putting in specific jobs that the army's short of. Sure. And right now, you know, 2008, 2009, we're just surging in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? So they need anybody they can get as an infantryman. So they're pushing me hard to become an infantryman. And I'm like, no, nah, I, I think that's a cool job, but I, I just want to be a pilot. Says he can't help me, this guy across the room, it's funny, yeah. he's he's from like Alabama or something, super thick Southern accent, he pushes off the desk. And he, he's got this big goofy smile, thick glasses, and stands up. He's like, he's taller than me. I'm six three. He's like six foot five. And he's like, I've never really put anybody in the army yet. And he stutters real bad. And he's like, but I'll help you. And I was like, Sheesh, man, this, <laughs> <laughs> this is the, <laughs> wow. the choice like, I got. I was like, all right, you know, let's <laughs> let's get to work, you know. So uh first things first, I go back down and I have to take the Asvab test again. The ASVAB is the arm skills vocational and battery test. I think that's what it stands for. Um, I don't remember the minimum score you had to get, but I got, I, I mean, obviously I scored high enough for that. Um, and then the next test was the AFAS, which was the, R, let's see, Aviation Flight and Skills Aptitude Test, something like that. Um, a bunch of weird questions. Um, like, would you rather pop a blister on your friend's toe or would you give rather give blood? And like, I don't want to do either of those, <laughs> but I, I guess give More blood, the, you know, like which one's not. And it was honestly probably like 70 questions, just like that weird psychological, yes, psychological evaluation, evaluation. Um, kind of an actual question. Yeah. That was one of them. Wow. Yeah. Like to decide how impulsive you might be or yeah. how rational
0: you might think through a,
1: um a, out of the box situation. Yeah. Just kind of determining what your personality is and would you fit the mold of what they think an army aviator is going to become. Um, and then after that, and it's all timed, you know, you have like 30 minutes to answer all these questions and it doesn't hurt you to not answer questions, but it hurts you to answer them wrong. But I don't know how you answer those questions right or wrong because it's just a weird question. Right. And then the rest of the test was just like they would show you a picture of an attitude indicator from an airplane. And you had to determine if it was turning right, turning left, if it was straight and level, if it was climbing, descending, whatever it was doing. You had to be able to look at this and determine. And this is the one where it was really timed or you looked at a series of like dots and you establish what pattern is going on. Just a bunch of weird stuff. Anyways, I, I, I scored high enough on that. And then from there, you go into just this long process. If you have to write a letter about yourself, why you want to be a pilot, Um, you have to get letters of recommendation from people who are in the military. And this is when things kind of started getting out of the bag um, because I had to reach out to people that I knew and ask them for help, which I hate doing. I hate asking people for help. Um, So I remember I called, you know, a couple of my my the people my dad flew with back in the day. Um, Dan Laguna was one of them. Klaus Hauer was another one of them. And I asked them, I said, hey, I, I want to go into the, the army. I want to be a pilot through the Warrant Officer Training Program. Um, can I get a letter of recommendation for you? And then they, of course, were happy to do it. Uh, they wrote my letters. And then you go to this uh, local level board in Utah and you you put on your suit and you go sit on this chair. And there were three people sitting up on the stage asking you all these just questions about yourself and, and why we should pick you over the next guy. And back then, supposedly it was really competitive. And they said it was like less than 20% of candidates were getting into or getting through the local level board. And I remember right before I went in there, the guy that I, I was going through the program or this recruiting process with another guy, um, he was a private pilot. And they kept telling me, like, you're wasting everybody's time. Like, this is kind of what I was hearing along the way from like not my recruiter, but like the rest of the recruiting office, like the supervisors and stuff, was that everybody who's trying to do this has a discriminator. They either have, um, prior flight experience or they have a college degree or there's some kind of discriminator that is going to benefit them that, that I didn't have. And I just kept thinking, well, like, I don't know, like I wasn't supposed to make it through, you know, this phase of this phase, whatever, but I'm I'm here. So let's just keep pushing. You know, if I get through, I get through, you know, worst case scenarios, somewhere along the lines, someone pulls the plug and says, no, and I can't do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Are they just trying to weed out people? Yeah. Trying to make you quit? Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: And that's, that's nailed it, dude. Like that's like the army, (laughs) like anything you want to do in the army, it's just a lot of paperwork. And it's a long drawn out process that if they can just force you to quit, then they don't have to tell you that you failed, you know? (laughs) Um, So those that are patient enough to actually do everything, like check all the boxes, they typically kind of just get through with it. You know, you didn't say, Hey, I'm
0: the differentiator. Yeah right. My iron will. Obviously, I've sat through all this crap you're
1: telling me. Yeah, exactly. I still want to do it. So (laughs) does that matter? I go. I remember just as before, I went into my local level board in Utah. This this sergeant major pulls me aside, and he gave me the same spiel that I'm wasting his recruits recruiter's time. That I I have zero chance of making it through this board, and I'm like, oh dang, dude. Like, maybe I am wasting someone's time. Go inside. I sit down, answer the questions it's all about me. I'd been a salesman for four years, so I could kind of BS my way through (laughs) almost anything. And I was a LDS missionary. You know, I could, (laughs) I could do that. So I could, I was good at rejection, right? Like that's all I I didn't have in for six years. Um, Come out of there. But as I'm leaving, they tell me, we're going to go ahead and recommend you for the national level. And I remember thinking, Oh dang, like, wow. And I remember going outside and trying to like walking the hallway, trying to find that guy like, Hey dude, like I wanted to tell him, but I never found him. Um, and then the national board, it was, you never even see it's, I don't even know what they look at for that. Um, I just remember it was after new year's, um, I had already gone to Fort Carson, Colorado for a flight physical. And that's when my, I don't know what she was at the time, girlfriend on and off again, girlfriend, Alexis. Um, that's when she found out what I was doing. Cause I'd never told her any either. Oh really? <laughs> no. Really? Yeah. And <laughs> so I met Fort Carson and they dilate your pupils so you can do an eye exam and, I had like ignored her texts all day long. And finally I get back to her and I'm like, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm in Colorado doing this like eye exam thing for work. That's all I said. And she's like, wait, are you joining the military? I was like, I couldn't even see my phone because <laughs> yeah. my eyes were so blurry, but I was like, what the heck did she like, is that what I think it says? And I remember asking my recruiter, I'm like, hey dude, what does that say? And he reads it to me and I was like, how did she know? Yeah. Like, I'm like, what in the heck? So I asked her how she knows. And she said she just watched Pearl Harbor and, you know, in Pearl Harbor, <laughs> when they do the eye test or whatever. So she somehow figured it all out. So she was like the only person that knew. Um, so I go, the national board happens and we're, this is after new year's now. in, in the beginning of 2009, sitting in the MEP station, the military entrance processing station in, uh, in Salt Lake city. And our recruiter, Sergeant Norod just kept coming out saying two minutes, two minutes. It was like four hours just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. And then he comes out and he's like, man, you guys don't know what you did. Uh, you're doing something right in your lives because you're both going to flight school, and I was just wow. elated, right? Like wow. super stoked. Um, so I go to flight school. Basic training was in uh, let's see uh, Fort Benning, Georgia.
0: Did they ever? Did they ever tell you um, what your differ- what your differentiator was? No, and their maybe. eyes, like, what set you apart? You never was just no. You
1: never hear anything. Interesting. It's just. I have no idea. I love it. You had all this
0: negative feedback, all this resistance, all these people telling you you're not going to make it, mm-hmm.
1: which is like going along with how I felt about, I want to be a pilot, but I can't do it because I suck at math like right. that. And that was like in my head like, the whole time too, like reinforced from like your teachers yeah. at, at school that were
0: telling you those things. Yeah.
1: Really um, so I'm just like thinking, man, like I'm, I am probably wasting everybody's time, but I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm, I feel like I'm just kind of answering my call that I felt like spiritually guided to do this. And I just kind of felt like along the way, if if this is meant to be, everything's going to fall into place. Everything's going to happen. And sure enough, it did, man. Um, basic training, two months long. Uh, it was pretty miserable down in Georgia. It was in the summertime. I was there like June, July. Um, super right. hot, great weather. You know, the fire ants are amazing. Yeah. Fire ants. <laughs> <laughs> um, after uh, basic training, I went down to Atlanta or I'm sorry. I went from uh, Fort Benning, Georgia to Fort Rucker, Alabama. Um, that's where I had another six weeks of, uh, it was called the officer candidate school. That was how I got my commission to become an officer. Cause I didn't have a college degree and I was going through a program called the War officer program to be a pilot. Uh, a War officer in the army is just a specialized, um, you have a specialized field that you're basically a professional at that particular field. They have aviation, they have artillery, they have All different branches of the military have warrant officers. Um, The majority of warrant officers, though, in the military or in the army are um, pilots. And uh, six weeks of just more kind of learning how to be an officer, more of like the the dumb stuff of like, yeah, you didn't fold your T-shirt correctly or your room has a little speck of dust right here. And so they'd mess everything up just to focus on. They basically they're trying to teach you attention to detail. You hear that little phrase over and over and over again, attention to detail, attention to detail. If the small things in, in your your room or in your personal life are distractions, then the attention to detail when you become a pilot could translate and become issues as well. It's kind of the focus of what that attention to detail is. You want to focus on every little thing, which um later on you kind of understand why that attention to detail. It's like, okay, like yeah, it was stupid back then, but I kind of understand why they made us focus on stupid, some of that stupid stuff. Um, I finished that course and I graduated from that as whatever. When you become wo a, a, a W01, they call you a Woj, a warrant officer junior oh, grade, Woj. kind of a, a, <laughs> a, not a very positive term. You know, if, if you're the Woj, it sounds like a stooge.
0: Yeah, like you're the
1: Woj you go stock the fridge, you know, like don't even talk to me unless the, the whole refrigerator is completely stocked. Um, that's kind of the basis of that. Are these, these higher ranking people yeah. this way?
0: As huh? I was, so was going to ask as a warrant officer, are you treated like an officer or are you treated like someone that enlisted and
1: uh, the only now person you get to be in the door <laughs> with other officers? The only op- person you're an officer to are like very junior enlisted people. They see you and the only time you're an officer is when you have to salute them back. Oh. But other than that, like you're you're, you're just the, the new guy you know, the the FNG, the F a new guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the it's like my first duty station out of flight school. Um, so you go through flight school and it's eight weeks of primary. You learn how to be a pilot, just, you know, how to hover a helicopter, how to fly a traffic pattern, how to talk on the radio. You have to memorize all your emergency procedures. Just there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And this whole time, I'm, I keep thinking like eventually, like they're gonna find me. I'm gonna be found out. Like I'm gonna find out that I suck at math. <laughs> they're gonna kick you out. You yeah, really? F- like I'm like, yeah. Like even though we were like, in and how the yeah, training. Like, still, I keep were- thinking like eventually we're gonna get to this math portion that's gonna like flip me on my head, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get booted. But it never happened. Man, I think that just not to not to <laughs> change the subject, and, and I want to come right back to this,
0: but I think it just underscores again the importance of surrounding your kids with positive influences in their lives and being able to be in control of who is influencing their vision of who they can become, you know, and and, absolutely. And what they can achieve. And I, I don't know it's because it just boggles my mind that you still at that point were like, they're going to, they're going to find out I'm a fake. (laughs) They're going to find out I don't need to be here. Yeah. I just, I I wanted to bring that up because our wives talked about that on their previous episodes about how important it is for you know, your kids to be mentored by adults that, you know, are safe and, but they're not necessarily authority figures over them. Mm-hmm. They're just like, you know, friends or um, appendages to a business that you're interacting with and things like, you know, we'd have, we have welders come to the farm and they would teach me how to weld. Yeah. And I was
1: six <laughs> and yeah. it was great. I mean, <laughs> but, I think just having the positive influences in your lives, like, uh, you know, kids are going to struggle with what they struggle with, but if we can find their strengths and help them overcome what they feel like are their issues, right? Like I wasn't done with math, I was just slow. Like I was just slower to learn. Cause eventually like, I mean, when's the last time you really used like X plus, Y. y equals
0: mx plus b yeah you know what i mean <laughs> yeah, like intercept. Like,
1: yeah i mean life is
0: well he sent me He actually showed me a meme yesterday <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> he's like a, a thousand time there's uh, a picture of a thousand time of when i've never had to use y equals mx plus b for anything exactly <laughs> <laughs> like
1: but like every day all day you're problem solving in that same way right you you have your variables and you're just solving for what the the end result is but you're sitting there in a controlled environment with a teacher that's writing up on the whiteboard or the chalkboard and I'm not getting these concepts. And so I keep thinking, you know, this whole time that, Oh man, I'm going to be found out. And they're just going to like, we're going to have this math lesson and I'm going to get kicked out. (laughs) I had a guidance counselor in high school
0: come to me and he was, we did some type of an
1: aptitude test or
0: whatever. And I didn't, I had decent grades, but he came to me. I didn't have great grades. I wasn't top of the class. I wasn't, I didn't really care. You know, I, it wasn't, I didn't need, for my own self-esteem, I didn't need to be top of the class. Right. I knew I was going to be whatever I was going to be in life. And I was, I was fairly secure in being able to obtain that. But my guidance counselor told me, he was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be a doctor. And he was like, Oh man, Lonnie, people like you, um, you might, you might <laughs> want to consider going to like a vocational school or like a tech school because people like you they don't become doctors. Like people like this guy. And he pointed out a certain guy, um, in the class, my name was Jason. He was like, this guy's going to be a doctor. Totally. You know? And I was just like, I, I really thought in my mind, F you, dude. I'm going to invite you to my graduation. Mm-hmm. Well, that. <laughs> and because and I was like, how dare you? You're supposed to be the guy that inspires me to achieve and like to yeah. become great. And like,
1: you're telling me like, no, your dream, forget it. Like People you, like you. Like who are you to tell you me who I that. can and can't be or what I can and can't achieve, right? Right. Like I remember. I would compare myself to my friends and peers or whatever in school and think like, man, that guy is like way smarter than me. Right. You know what I mean? But, but what, based on what, you know, uh, based on what the public school system tells you you should, or you shouldn't be like, that's the baseline, but I don't know that it's the correct baseline Right. because everybody, you know, we, we grow differently, we learn differently, and we achieve at our own pace sometimes. So how did you get it to from, from this point to, you know, being a combat
0: helicopter pilot? And you know, you mentioned you had so many missions and so many hours, and all these things of combat flight time. And you were not just flying; like you're flying a Chinook, yeah, right. So, yeah. how did you how did you get to that point? Well, from getting this this mountain of self doubt, right? You have you're, you're kind of what do you call it the new the, the new schleb? What are you the like, woge the woge? <laughs> yeah, you're the woge. You're 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 god of the self doubt. How do you accomplish? Because when I when I became aware of you. Um, uh, as, as my wife's cousin's husband, um, to me, it was like, here's this badass that's it's flying these helicopters and then, you know, in Afghanistan and like <laughs> doing this stuff. And, and all we saw was now as I'd look at I
1: never knew that, yeah, yeah, that this was there. This was there. So yeah, it's eight weeks of primary, eight weeks of instruments where you learn how to fly the helicopter on instruments. And then three weeks of BWS basic warfighting fighting skills. And I was never the top performer in flight school, but I wasn't the worst. I was just right in the middle of the road. And eventually, we we all finish, and then you go into your advanced airframe selection and I pick Chinooks. Prepare to be captivated by the extraordinary legend of the CH-47 Chinook helicopter, a true icon that reigns supreme in the skies of aviation. With its awe-inspiring tandem rotor design and unmatched versatility, The Chinook has transcended the boundaries of mere machinery. At first glance, it may seem contradictory that the CH-47 Chinook possesses both a massive carrying capacity and impressive speed. However, a closer inspection of this magnificent machine unveils a multitude of features that have firmly established its position as one of the world's most recognizable helicopters.
0: Were you able to select or do they select? You know, you, you have the capability to fly this based on uh-huh. your scores or yep. you can fly Apache Yeah, you go into this, or, in OML, an
1: OML and order merit list and... Um, or can you pick, could you have picked to fly whatever you I wanted? I could have picked, the only thing other than a, a Chinook for me in my selection that was available was an Apache. There were, um, it was like a, a Kiowa <laughs> yeah, went number right. one. Just an <laughs> Apache. Yeah, you know. <laughs> a Kiowa went number one and there was a Blackhawk and then it was a, it was a, a random selection. It's all based on needs of the army at that moment. They say, oh. we need this many pilots. And so if you're at the mercy of what the army says, gotcha. Um, so I picked the one Chinook that was up on the board.
0: You said a coyote
1: went. A Kiowa. Kiowa. Yeah. That's
0: was a, that like what everybody wanted
1: to fly. No. Um, okay. They actually, the army got rid of that helicopter. Oh. Um, it was a scout helicopter. I think they should have kept it around, but that's, you know, whatever the army, they make dumb decisions all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, go to Chinook fly school. It was like 20 something weeks long. I loved every minute of it. I had great instructors. Um, I loved flying the Chinook and, The Chinook, it's basically a school bus with rotor blades on top, the tandem rotor system and finished my first duty station out of flight school was Germany. Um, they hadn't Germany. They had just fielded the F model Chinook, which is what I flew. I was like the third or fourth F model class to graduate from Fort Rucker. Um, so I go to Germany and they had D models, the old model there, and they had just come home from a deployment from Afghanistan. So most of the guys were still on, um, block leave post deployment, block leave. They start trickling in and there's this new W1 there, this new Woge, And I, I took some, <laughs> I took the brunt of some of this crap. Like they'd come in, they look at the refrigerator, like a Coke label would be kind of crooked a little bit. And so they'd throw everything out and just the dumb crap, you <gasps> just know, hazing. yeah, it's just hazing, you know, like, or I'd come in and the refrigerator would be empty and everybody had stuffed their trash into the, oh the refi- you know, like, or, you know, like the bathroom wasn't clean enough and just dumb stuff. But it's like, whatever, I'll put up with the, the crap. I'll, I'll play the game. Promotes and, camaraderie. Yeah, it's fun. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not getting upset about it because this is what Wojas are supposed to be treated like, right? <laughs> you know, like, just just go with it. And then it becomes like, ah, oh, this, this dude's not so bad, you know? Like, I just kind of do as the, the senior guys are asking me to do, do what I'm being asked and eventually make it through. And I was there in Germany for one year and I went on my first deployment as a co-pilot. Um, I say co-pilot because the career progression of an army pilot is typically come out of flight school knowing nothing. Um, you know how to fly a helicopter, but that's about it. You don't know how to be a mission pilot. You don't know how to do mission planning. You don't know how, you don't know a lot. You don't know what you don't know, right? You have to go experience it. So I flew in Germany as a co-pilot for a year, went to my fir- on my first deployment in 2012 to RC West, uh, regional command West in Afghanistan, which we ended up being at Shindan air base. Um, it was like, 50 100 miles or something like that off the border of iran i don't remember exactly but um did a lot of cool operations there most of the time most of those flights were daytime um ring routes we called them we would just go resupply all the the outlying fobs the forward operating bases bring them water uh food bullets um pick up people just kind of move people around the battlefield and then i remember it was july the night of july 3rd into july 4th of 2012 that i did my first they called it um da mission direct action mission um so it was a night time we were working with the italian special forces going after some bomb maker um down in near farah province in afghanistan and that was my first direct action mission because there's the gs mission which is the general support which is just kind of ring routes you just you go out and fly for eight hours a day usually um and then the direct action missions are just a lot more direct they're deliberate um usually takes a 72-hour planning cycle the, the customers, or in this case, the the Italian special operations unit came to us with a, an objective. And so we, we planned off of the information they gave us on how we were going to go do that and execute that mission. And everything, I guess, went off without a hitch. And that was my first taste of actual like combat flying. And, you know, you don't know what to expect on these first combat missions like that. And it's I was it's, gonna ask like, were you nervous? Oh, it's terrifying. Yeah, like <laughs> it is, it is it is so terrifying. You know, like I'm this new pilot. I'm in Afghanistan. It's it's dark, obviously. We fly these missions at nighttime, and so you're flying with MVGs on. And I remember thinking like I like, oh, wow. I don't even want to try and get close to the other helicopters because I like I suck at formation flying A. I'm too new at it. And there were four helicopters on the on the assault that night, two Blackhawks and two Chinooks. And there were obviously other aircraft involved, like Apaches and stuff. But in our formation, it was just the four helicopters, two Blackhawks, two Chinooks. And I don't remember where we were in the formation, but I remember I couldn't keep where I was supposed to be. So I was with another senior uh, instructor pilot um, that kept telling me, hey, like he kept taking the controls and putting me in position. And then he would give me back the controls and say, try and stay right here, you know, keep your formation tight or whatever. Um, and I, I just kept kind of terrified, you know, but it's honestly, it's so terrifying landing in the dust, landing at nighttime, you have all this pressure, you have 30 plus dudes in the back of the helicopter that are going to assault this village and either kill or capture this bad guy who's facilitating bombs in Western and Southern Afghanistan. Um, so that was the first one I did. And then the rest, I, I remember that one, but then the rest, I, they just kind of blur together. Um, came home from that first deployment a year later, 10 months later, and got signed off as a pilot-in-command. And now, like, the fun and the real learning begins as a helicopter pilot.
0: All right, Sam, dude, I think right there is a great cliffhanger and opportunity for us to segue into our next episode. Yeah. And so I want to close this out. Thank you guys for listening and viewing our podcast. And we will be back with our very next episode, and we're going to continue with... Sam Scheid. Don't forget to, uh, again, like share and subscribe. If you found value in this episode, we know your friends and family will as well. And we'll see you next time on the value script.